please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. It might be your shock and amazement, but once again, we're only tackling one chapter today. While you're flipping there, what is one of the most loved and at the same time one of the most hated phrases in life? Whether it's friends, siblings, or spouses, the words, I told you so, are rather notorious. You see someone doing something less than intelligent, and you warn them that their plans may not work out as well as they think they're going to. But cloaked with pride and stubbornness, the person continues until disaster and failure inevitably strike. Then, depending on your maturity level... You either, to, they, you either tell them, I told you that would happen, or you only think it. Now, I'm sure all of you have been involved in this process at some point on one or the other side of this. And in one sense, there's always someone who's going to know better what to do that we should listen to. But of course, we don't always know that someone else actually knows better, and therein lies another problem. And so, in addition to stretching our finite minds, trying to figure out whatever it is that we're working on, We're also forced to weigh in our minds, is the advice that I'm getting actually legitimate advice? Because it's coming from a finite human like me. So will it actually be helpful? Well, thankfully, for all of the most important things in this life, there's one we can always know is right. Because God is perfect in all he does and in everything he says. His word is without fault and it is without error. And at the heart of God's instructions to believers is to rest in Christ and to lean not on your own understanding. We are not commanded to listen to other people who may or may not be correct in every situation. But because the Lord is king, we must submit to his rule at all times. So with that, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest 
and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. We're going to break this down into three sections. And the first point is Israel's plan. Let's do a recap of where we are in the book. In chapter 7, just before this, was one of the best high points of the book of 1 Samuel. Israel wholeheartedly repented of their sin and they returned to the Lord. God had worked mightily, powerfully through the preaching and leadership of Samuel to awaken Israel to brand new life. But since then, many years have passed. Samuel is now an old man whose strength is beginning to fade. Now, during his long ministry, Israel has thrived because they were walking in obedience to the Lord. But now, as Israel is so apt at doing, the nation again swerves from the path of faithfulness into something else. So, while far from the lows of the ark being being captured in chapter 4, chapter 8 is still a very dark step in Israel's history. And once again, the example set by Israel is one of rebellion and a lack of faithfulness to their covenant Lord. So the situation at the start of the chapter that precipitates all of this is uncertainty concerning Israel's future leadership. Samuel has led faithfully for many years, but eventually he's going to die. And who then is going to take his place? Now, for some reason, Samuel has had named his sons Joel and Abijah as judges. And if you go by what their names mean, then that's not necessarily a bad thing. Joel means Yahweh is God, and Abijah means son of Yahweh, or excuse me, my father is Yahweh. But hereditary succession of judges was not a normal pattern in Israel. The nation had tried to make the judge Gideon king and his sons after him. But Gideon rightly replied in Judges 8.23, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Eli, his sons were supposed to take over the judgeship for him, but they were horribly wicked and were put to death by the Lord. And so really, it's the Lord who calls judges, not men. Joel and Abijah should not have been set up as Samuel's successors. And we should see a problem with all that right away. But the biggest problem in all of this is that Samuel's sons were crooked men who perverted justice and took bribes. 
Now, unlike Eli with his son, Samuel does not appear complicit in their evil, nor does it appear that it was any shortcoming on his part that led to their wickedness. But nonetheless, Israel knew the damage that bad leadership could do to the nation. And so they needed to find a solution to this problem of Samuel's wicked sons. And they all knew the law well enough to know that in Deuteronomy 17, there was a provision made for monarchy in the future. Hannah, Samuel's mother back in 2.10, also uh, assumed the establishment of a king. In verse 10 of chapter 2, she said, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So part of God's plan for Israel was establishing a king in his timing. And so armed with the excuse of Samuel's age and his worthless sons, the elders of Israel say to Samuel in verse 5, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. There are two elements to their request that we need to understand here. First, this was not a transition from no government to government. There was already a governmental structure in place in Israel. The elders of the land ruled and handled cases working together with the priests and prophets. Then when needed, God would raise up a judge whenever and wherever it was needed. And judges were typically for certain regions of Israel to address a specific threat. And actually Samuel was the first and only judge to be truly a national judge over Israel. Regardless, the people's request for a king was a radical departure from the current system in Israel. They wanted an all-out revolution in government leadership, a full new system. So that's the first thing we need to know. Second, notice their insistence on becoming like what? All the nations. They wanted to conform to those around them. Why? I think something more than a desire for a king is going on in this request. There's more to their request than meets the eye. We've already noted that asking for a king is not wrong because Deuteronomy 17 allowed for that. The Lord had already approved of this concept and given laws for the king to follow in the future. So why was this a bad request? The answer lies in the motivation behind their request. They wanted to be like all the nations. That was their motivation. God had called them to be his special people. He redeemed them. He fought for them. He provided for them. And he guided them. And yet they decided that it would be better off, that they would be better off if a human king ruled over them instead of Yahweh. They were not satisfied with God's rule despite living in a time of peace and prosperity. So at this pivotal moment, with a change in leadership to occur in the near future, their discontent was revealed. And so they asked for a king so they can be just like the world. Well, that takes us to the second point, God's warning from verse 6 through 18. So this request for a king, it was not well received by Samuel. And we don't know exactly what part of the request upset Samuel. Uh, Since he was a national judge at the time, he likely felt like he was being personally rejected. We know that. He could have been frustrated that his sons were wayward and unfit to lead. 
It's also possible that this was the first time he had heard of their evil. Or perhaps he was mad because he knew Israel was asking for a king for the wrong reasons. And maybe it's all of the above. But rather than just reacting in anger and rebuking the people, he instead acts in faith. He goes to Yahweh in prayer and he takes the matter to him. So the one mediating, interceding for Israel as the judge carries a request to God. God knew the situation. The same God who created man, who created Israel, he knows what's inside of man. He knew the real motivations in the hearts of these Israelite elders when they asked for a king. Israel wasn't just asking for a new leader. They didn't just want to replace Samuel. They wanted to replace God as their king. The Lord had been the one who raised up judges, including Samuel, in order to shepherd and to lead his people. In asking for a king, Israel showed that they no longer wanted a system dependent upon God and his timing. When, where, and how God raised up judges, it was not on a schedule and it was not announced beforehand for Israel. Israel wanted assured protection through worldly means. Rebellion and pride that we see here, this was not a new problem among God's people either. From a moment the Lord rescued the Israelites out of Egypt and established them as his people, they were prone to idolatry and rebellion. They were brought out of Egypt to the edge of the Red Sea and immediately despaired and rebelled when they saw Pharaoh and his army. At Mount Sinai, Moses comes down holding the law in his hands, and what does he see? Aaron leading the people and worshiping a golden calf. Then on the way to the promised land, there was grumbling, there was distrust, there was further idolatry, and thousands fell along the way because of rebellion. Then they finally arrive at the border of the land, but again they rebel. And they wander in the wilderness for 40 years while an entire generation dies off. Now the next generation, they finally make it into the promised land. But then they fail to drive off all the inhabitants like they were commanded. And then the book of Judges shows the result of that, this horrid spiral of sin and idolatry and rebellion against the Lord. But now, under the peace and prosperity of Samuel's faithful tenure, Israel again decides to rebel against the Lord and go their own way. So if you were Samuel, how would you respond to Israel's request, knowing that it is not a good one, or at least not from good motivations? Well, God told Samuel how to answer their request with three commands to Samuel. First, the Lord told Samuel to obey their voice. If they really want a king, if they really want to be like all the other nations, then give them one. But at the same time, this request will have serious consequences for Israel. And so second, God commanded Samuel to solemnly warn them. And a very tra- literal translation of the Hebrew there is warning them, you shall warn them. Of course, we don't speak like that in English, but it does a good job of telling us the emphasis being placed on this warning. God told Samuel to emphatically warn Israel that having a king will not be as amazing and wonderful as they seem to think it will be. There will be no excuse if they ignore the warning that Samuel gives them. And third, Samuel was commanded to show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Now notice that back in verse 5, Israel asked for a king to judge them. 
The judges were meant to rescue, to protect, and provide justice to the land of Israel. That's what judging means in the book of Judges. They wanted a king to carry on those duties in a predictable way. But they fundamentally misunderstood what a king was. Because kings do not judge, they reign. A king is completely different from a judge. So Samuel's new task was to explain to Israel exactly what it is that they were asking for. And in his description, explaining what a king will do, there's one word that appears six times from verses 11 to 17. And it perfectly summarizes what a king will do when he reigns. They will take from the people in order to build their own power, prestige, and glory. Judges were supposed to be servant leaders. They gave themselves, fought for the sake of the people. But a king is going to completely reverse that whole dynamic. In verse 11, the king will take sons to be soldiers, bodyguards, and heralds for the king. They will be named officers. There will be a generals in a standing army. Some other young men will work in the fields while others produce weapons and military machinery needed to support a massive army. And all of that means that those men will not be home with their families to help them farm and to help them survive. In verse 13, the king will take daughters to serve as bakers, cooks, and beauticians. In verse 14, the king will take the best of the farming land and give it to his supporters. Because if you're a king, you've got to keep your loyal people happy. Then in verse 15, he will take a tenth of everything you produce in order to support his people. And he will take the best of your servants and your livestock to work for him in verse 16. And finally, in verse 17, the king will take two more things. First, he will take a tenth of Israel's flocks. So in addition to the tithe that all Israel was supposed to give to the Lord, now they owe a king a tenth of all of their produce and flocks as well. And if that seems overbearing, it's because it is. But then second, the king will effectively take all of Israel as slaves. They will be under his thumb to do his bidding. Did you notice how the Lord mentioned bringing Israel out of Egypt back in verse 8? They were once slaves back in Egypt, crying out under the oppression of Pharaoh, the Egyptian king. And now, because of their hardness of heart and rebellion, they wanted to return to slavery under a human king. So the final warning is that Israel will cry out because of their king, just as they had in Egypt. But here God will not deliver them on that day. There will be no exodus rescue if they choose to put a king over themselves willingly. If after this grievous warning, Israel still wants a king, they must reap what they sow. So here's the warning. It's been laid out fully for Israel. Now we move into the third and final point, the response of Israel. I just titled it Israel's Stubbornness, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. So after hearing all these warnings about kingship, surely Israel realized they were wrong and repented of their request, right? Wrong. Samuel solemnly warned all of Israel by showing them exactly what it was they were truly asking for. But instead of obeying Samuel, of heeding the warning, 
They refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Samuel's warnings fell on deaf ears because their hearts were set on idolatry and rebellion and they had rejected God. And here we see more of the reasons why they want a king so badly. They wanted to be like all the nations. God had called Israel to be his special people set apart from the nations. But rather than living differently from the world, they wanted to rejoin the world. They didn't want to be free to serve the Lord. They preferred instead to serve the world and be just like the pagan nations around them. What could possibly have persuaded them that the kings of the nations were better than what they already had in God? I think the answer is found in one word, and that one word is security. Security. The elders listed two functions that they believed the kings of the nations performed. Notice that they believed. Didn't say it's right. That they believed that the nations around them performed. First, they wanted a king to judge them. Now, Samuel's warning that a king reigns rather than judges fell on deaf ears. They did not listen to or care that their understanding of what a king does was fundamentally incorrect. And second, they wanted a king who would go out before them and fight their battles for them. Now, kings do go out and fight, but they also take everything from the people in order to do so thus impoverishing a nation. But in Israel's minds, a king could bring them security and peace consistently. So they refused to listen, and they demanded a king. And upon hearing their stubbornness, their stubborn response, Samuel relayed these words to God, that this is their decision. Of course, the Lord already knew what they had decided. But Samuel, acting as that intercessor, as that mediator, He presents their response to God. They want to continue with this plan. So now that the people have committed to their evil intentions despite the costs, the Lord commands Samuel to obey their voice for a third time in this passage and make them a king. So Samuel, he sends all Israel home until the Lord reveals instructions on how to appoint this king. And the rest of 1 Samuel will be the unfolding of a lesson for Israel as their request brings them nothing but trouble. In verse 10, Israel was asking for a king. Now, the root of the word asking is the same root that is used in King Saul's name. But what will become evident from the beginning of Saul's reign is that this king that Israel asked for was a failure who they would have to suffer under. And it isn't until 2 Samuel that we see God set up his man as king. Israel wanted security and peace, but they were not willing to go to the Lord to find it. They wanted security their way when they wanted it. The kings of the nations, they would call on their gods to to go fight in battle before them. Those false gods were actually at their king's control to wield against their foes. So Israel not only rejected Yahweh as their king and as their military leader, but they wanted to place him under the control of the king who would be set up. What they wanted was a tame and controllable Yahweh who would do the bidding of their human ruler. They wanted a consistent, guaranteed victory. But when Israel repented and obeyed God, 
He conquered for them and he ruled over them. He protected them. He gave them peace. And now at this point in history, when they were enjoying that peace, they sought a system in which they would be the ones in control. How foolish an idea when they had seen in their own lifetimes the key to military victory and peace, that it was faithfulness to God. Furthermore, in chapter 4, Israel was supposed to have learned what happens when you try to presumptuously use God as a weapon. And the result in that series of rebellions was 34,070 men dead and the ark of God being captured for a time. But now a new generation wants to try their hands at rebellion once again. How can they be so foolish? They were so hard-hearted and they were so stubborn. Yet perhaps each one of us is much more like those Israelites than we care to admit. Is your hope fully set in the Lord? Or do you have idols in your heart that you are trusting in to bring you peace or security or whatever it is? If you look around at the world, it is a pretty dreadful and terrifying place in many ways. Are you trusting in the Lord to protect you? Or are you banking on getting the right candidate? In office, right president, the right senator, governor, political ideology, they will not fix your real problems. Where does your security truly come from in this life? Where are you placing your trust to keep you protected? Having the right health insurance, having the right investment portfolio, assets, land, they're not going to provide you any protection in this life where moth and rust destroy You could focus on a healthy lifestyle, keeping your body up and healthy, but in in the end, your body will fail and you will die. A good reputation, popularity, likability, they're not going to protect you from anything either. No convoluted plan of yours can provide you the security that you desire in this life. So if you truly examine your hearts, then you know you're guilty of the same sin as these rebellious and hard-hearted Israelites. There's only one who truly has the ability to say, I told you so, and always be correct. Though he is merciful and kind and doesn't do that. Throughout the Bible, God tells us plainly that he is our mighty fortress, that he is our cornerstone, that he is our savior, redeemer, and even friend. So don't do as the Israelites do and cling to control and security. Don't do what your sinful hearts desire and pursue security in this world where it is everywhere promised and nowhere to be found. There's only one king. And it isn't any government. It isn't in any earthly leader. And it definitely isn't in you. Christ is the king and there is no other. Jesus reigns. So give your life over to him and let go of your pride that wants to cling to control. He is the sovereign, almighty God. And 1 Peter 5, 7 explains it best when it says, Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And there and there alone in King Jesus lies security and peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our security, that you are our peace that you are Redeemer, Savior, and Friend, that our King would call us Friend is shocking in and of itself. 
that you have not only died, laid down your life for us that we might be yours, but you continue guiding us all the way through life and you call us friend. Lord, we don't know how to respond to that except by giving you praise. So Lord, help us to trust in you, to admit and to remember and remind ourselves frequently that you are king overall. We are not king. We are not in control. Lord, help us to forget the illusion that we are and help us to cling all the more to you. We ask this in Jesus' name.